0: Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nail the Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fist started this podcast to go over high orthopedic surgery topics, mm-hmm. but you are now tuned into our OITE review featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine, and we are going through some basic science. Now, if you have not already, our trauma notes, our trauma OITE podcast companion notes have been released. If you have not gotten them yet, I hope you click the link in the uh, in this podcast description to sign up so you can get access to those or just email us or email me at annailedortho at gmail.com those are out there please uh, let us know your feedback if you like them things you think we can improve on them and and so on and forth uh, and please don't drag me through the mud I tried to make some of these uh, most of those images myself uh, so if, if the image quality is uh, is the thing please don't drag me through the mud but without further ado let's continue on with some basic science and learn some more you are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole.
1: And uh, more, I guess, interesting in terms of basic science uh, is infections. And so uh, although a lot of this was covered in Our medical school, either uh, uh, micro uh, lectures or pharmacology lectures. And uh, a lot of it is on step three. So this will be useful for the uh, interns listening and uh, gearing up to take their step three. Um, uh, Also check out like the Miller's review book or ortho bullets for a deeper dive into this stuff. But uh, we'll start off fairly uh, simple, but uh, definitely testable. What is the mechanism of action of penicillin?
0: Yep, back to second year pharmacology. So, uh, penicillin inhibits peptidoglycan bonds of bacterial cell walls. We are breaking it all the way down. So, what does MSSA stand for? It's all over the charts and these patients' charts, and you know we we, we they, they ask about it, um, or at least you'll see it with patients all the time. Hopefully not all the time, but you will see it with patients. But what does MSSA stand for?
1: So MSSA is uh, basically methicillin-sensitive uh, staph aureus. So it, uh, this this specific strain of staph, staph aureus is uh, able to be treated with methicillin or a similar antibiotic like uh, napcillin or uh, dicloxacillin. And uh, on the flip side of that, obviously, we've all heard of um, MRSA. So uh, what is the gene that makes MRSA different from MSSA?
0: Yeah, so you have the mecA gene, which codes for a penicillin-binding protein two A, which is PBP two A, which makes sense, right? So this gene um, it does not bind to penicillin well, which which helps you know make it make penicillin not work or make these different methicillin or these different medications not work. So when you have that mecA, the mecA gene that codes for a penicillin binding protein 2A, again, which doesn't bind to penicillin well. So that'll render that medication less effective. Now, um, also, uh, staphylococcal chromosome cassette mobile mobile um, element carrying 4. I know that was a mouthful, but it's, it's abbreviated as SCCMEC4. Again, that stands for staphylococcal chromosome cassette mobile element carrying 4. Is going to be what carries this MEK-A gene. So, again, in summary, from this SCC MEC4 carries this, the MEK-A gene. And what the MEK-A gene does, it codes for uh, penicillin binding protein 2A. And again, that doesn't bind to penicillin well. So, those medications are not effective. And that is how you get this methicillin resistant staph arias so when you're looking at chart and it says mrsa positive that is why um, now you know we have different types of MRSA we have hospital and we have community acquired MRSA uh, what are some of the differences between hospital and community acquired MRSA infections
1: uh the I mean obviously if you think about it more in like a common sense uh way the uh Hospital MRSA is likely to be more drug resistant just because it's uh, kind of born from the hospital. And it's uh, either unfortunately being transferred from patient to care provider who then brings it to another patient or brings it to uh, another colleague who then brings it to another patient. So it just, this strain typically stays in the hospital. And um, as more antibiotics are thrown at it, it, kind of becomes stronger uh, in and of itself, and it develops a larger uh, staphylococcal chromosome cassette mobile element carrying unit, uh, so a larger SCC-MEC, and then the community acquired is not around so many antibiotics, it's not as strong, so it has a smaller SCC-MEC, and um, the thing is that, and I, I can't remember exactly how I saw it brought up, whether it was just uh, through reading and studying or on an actual test, but this uh, panton valentine lukocidin cytotoxin uh, this PVL is what is another component of the MRSA and typically of the community-acquired uh, MRSA. Um, and that lyses the PMNs that uh, try to attack it. And so the PMNs have kind of a less destructive role of the MRSA um and then uh the thing that kind of destroys uh a little bit of us uh inside every time we see an infected <laughs> hardware but what is the gene that causes uh increased adhesion of staph aureus to our metallic implants uh like titanium
0: yeah so this is going to be the fnb gene that's just again something just road memorization you got to know fnb gene is going to um, that gene causes increased adhesion of staph aureus to titanium. And yet, and like you were saying that, that PVL gene or that Panton Valentine and gene, I've seen that asking in qu- and I, that was the answer too. And, but I've seen that asking questions and I, it had something to do with, you know, they had a, a mercipation and, um, asked about, I guess, kind of what gene helped with, you know, it's like a uh, course or toxicity or something like that. And it was that, um, Pentin valentine leukocidin gene again that that lysis the pmns uh, and then we just said the fnb gene is going to um, cause increased adhesion of staph aureus to titanium uh, what does bacterial glycol glycolax biofilm slime polysaccharoid capsule protect against i know that was a lot but again so what is that that kind of that capsule that that um, bacterial glycolax um, that biofilm is the main thing what is that that kind of polysaccharide um cats will protect against
1: yeah it's basically just a shield uh against anything our body or anything we put into our body like antibiotics can attack it with so um uh, antibiotics can't penetrate it uh even if they are in the surrounding area of the bacteria it's very hard for those antibiotics to get in and then our own cells uh because of this shield that they have around it um, they can't phagocytose the uh, bacteria and kill it. And so um, it basically just stays there and it can lie dormant. And then it has uh, some of these like planktonic uh, portions of it versus more sessile portions of it. And it can develop over a number of years, but uh, it really the only way to get rid of it is by taking the implants out and putting new implants in, which is why in uh, like arthroplasty or infected fracture fixation and stuff, you have to actually take all of the hardware out in order to rid the patient of the infections because of this biofilm uh, development and it's just so hard to get it off. Um, and then uh, something that, will likely be seen on call and definitely tested on is uh, a patient who has a rapidly progressing uh, subcutaneous infection um, with uh, basically a foul smelling grayish pus seen in surgery. What is that? Yes,
0: yeah, So that's going to be characteristic for necrotizing fasciitis. And there are different types of necrotizing fasciitis, but most often it's just going to be, a, it's going to be a polymicrobial uh, infection. Um, there are also, you know, there is a, a type 2 monomicrobial infection uh, for which strep pyogenase is the most common bug, uh, which causes that infection. Um, but, you know, you also have vibrio vulnificus you'll see with saltwater lacerations. Um, you have aeromonas hydrophilia with freshwater lacerations. So, and, you know, just also the environment for which uh, this injury um happen plays a part. So in those, mono, monomicrobial, um, in, in, in those monomicrobial infections, in those type two infections, strep pyogenes is going to be the most common, but if you have a patient that has um, a saltwater laceration, you have to cover for vibrio volunificus. And if you have a patient that has a freshwater laceration, um, you have to cover for Aeromonas hydrophilia. And you also need to know what these patients, like if you examine a patient and they just have pain, just way out of proportion to what you would expect and um and they just kind of have um this like this they have pain out of proportion outside of that erythema margin that you see on their skin those are going to be things that are going to clue you in towards this is possibly necrotizing fasciitis this may need um, you know, a debridement and that, that, was actually a nice question. I'll just go ahead and go into it. Um, that may need, you know, an emergent wide debridement is going to be the, the the treatment for patients that have these necrotizing fasciitis. And the thing to know is that if you delay treatment greater than 24 hours, that leads to an increased mortality rate. So you do not want to delay treatment, um, in, in these patients anytime you have any type of, um, Concern for necrotizing fasciitis, this is an emergency um, class A case. You know, you go back, why and excise all that dead tissue, get them on some IV antibiotics and you do not want to delay treatment for more than 24 hours. Now, what is the condition or what conditions noted in a patient that had a lawnmower wound uh, that went to the ED um, a couple of days ago uh, and they they saw it and they closed the they closed the wound and then they appeared, you know, a couple of days later back in the ED saying their foot or their arm still hurts them a little bit. And then on examination, you feel a little bit of soft tissue crepitus and then you get an X-ray and there's some air in the soft tissues on the X-ray. What do you, what are you worried about?
1: Uh, that would be gas gangrene. And it's like that, that gas is what's causing that crepitus in the air and the soft tissues. And it's typically clostridium perfringens. However, it also can be polymicrobial. Um, And essentially what you don't want to do is close these sort of injuries. Like, uh, I think the classic thing is like, don't close war wounds, tornado injuries, or lawnmower injuries. Um, because, uh, you, what you're doing is you're trapping all of that stuff inside and it has to spread somewhere and it's going to spread via the fascial planes and develop this gas gangrene. Um, And it's treated uh, similar to necrotizing fasciitis uh, with uh, pretty much emergent uh, irrigation and debridement. Um, You're gonna treat these patients with IV penicillin because they are a clostridium, uh, typically a clostridium infection and penicillin is very active against clostridium species. And also with clindamycin. And the reason for clindamycin is a lot of times this is more due to an actual toxin produced by the clostridium, and the clinda decreases the amount of toxin that's produced, while penicillin actually kills the bacteria. So you want to treat it with both penicillin and clindamycin. Um, And one other thing about the necrotizing fasciitis if you haven't seen it, um, it is very dramatic. They will. Their leg will look normal uh, in your 6 p.m. consult and will look like somebody just ran it over with a truck in terms of the amount of bruising and swelling and purplish discoloration by the next morning. So nice. uh, those that is emergent. There's something called an l score, uh, which is useful for necrotizing fasciitis. And they may bring this up in questions, but basically the l score score goes over things like Uh, hemoglobin, white blood cell count, uh, uh, CRP level, um, presence of a fever, and uh, a few other things I can't remember off the top of my head, but um, there's a like mdcalc.com has an excellent just calculator where you can punch in all these numbers. And if it reaches a certain score, they have a very high chance of developing necrotizing fasciitis. And so you would want to err more on the more aggressive side of treatment and go ahead and operate on these patients rather than just giving them antibiotics and waiting because they can go south very quick. Um, but on to the next thing: um, when you have uh, an orthopedic infection after a surgery, what is the most likely organism that it is?
0: Most likely, staph aureus, staph aureus, staph aureus, um, that is the most likely thing sometimes they will try to trip you up and say oh well, this patient has a uh, has salmonella and they'll, they'll want you to um or they'll they, they'll say like this patient has sickle cell and they'll want you to choose salmonella but it's still staph aureus most most common um now what are some you know we're talking about infections and now we have like surgical side infections what are some host factors um for surgical side infections
1: i uh, it's Pretty much the things that would not be surprising once you saw them. Uh it's yeah. I mean, it's unhealthy patients. I, I yes, you do have healthy patients like uh that uh quarterback who developed a bad infection after his Tibia oh, fracture.
0: Is that a uh, was that Dak Prescott? No, no, it wasn't Prescott. It was um it was a it was an yeah, I know exactly what I you're talking remember. about. I just can't think of his name. <laughs>
1: I'm sorry to the whole orthopedic community <laughs> yelling at me right now because I don't is. know my NFL quarterback. But um, uh, yes, he young, healthy, active guy, but developed an infection unfortunately. But really, what you're where you're going to be most cautious and most concerned about, and counsel these patients as much as you can. Uh, BMI over thirty, malnourished. So um, if you're concerned at all, get a dietary consult. Um, those that have an active infection. If somebody has a femur shaft fracture, but they also have several subcutaneous pustules either in the area or somewhere else in the body, that can get seeded into the uh, area of surgery. If they're heavy drinkers, heavy smokers, diabetics, anemics, uh, immunocompromised by any means. So whether that's uh, true uh, immunocompetency with with like. Uh, HIV versus uh, likely like medicated, uh, medication induced like rheumatoid arthritis, um, recent uh, uh, dental work, and not just like a tooth cleaning, like a, a like very invasive dental procedure, um, like tooth extraction, um, and then uh, bacteruria or active UTI. Um, and typically that's, uh, if you can postpone surgery for those patients, that's good. Sometimes you can't for the trauma patients, but for uh, like elective joints for an active UTI, get them on treatment, bring them back a week later and do surgery then. Um, and uh, so what's the organism seen with a human bite?
0: Yep. Human fight bite. You want to be worried about Eikenella cordons. And um, uh, this is a, a question, I don't know if it's a high-yield question or if it's a good pimp question, but I know we always, if somebody, you know, we're doing like Fracture Conference and one of the consoles with somebody with a human bite, so well, and, and undoubtedly somebody in the audience will ask, oh, well, do you know what organisms most commonly uh, or that you have to worry about with human bites? And it's going to be this Econelocordins. Um, when you have a fight bite, an actual fight bite, and we'll talk about this when we do hand, but you know it goes down through the capsule. You treat that with irrigation and debridement. But for uh, these human bites, you, in order to cover um, the Econel cordons, you treat this with amoxicillin and clavonic acid. So you treat them with that uh, that that combination. Now, what about dog and cat bites? Is there a certain organism you need to be worried about there?
1: Pastorella uh, motocida, and that, again, uh, is uh, amoxicillin versus uh, clavula, uh, amoxicillin plus clavuline acid or um, uh, cefoxitin, uh, which is a, a cephalosporin, um, and then uh, uh, you really talked a little bit about, like, marine injuries versus uh, freshwater injuries, um, but uh, what organism is seen in... Uh, either like marine injuries or if you have a really aggressive fish that just wants to take a chunk out of your hand.
0: <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, this is going to be like that Mycobacterium marinum. Um, so that's going to be seen in fish bites and marine injuries. Um, things to know for this, a, a, it's a very slow culture at a low temperature. And to treat this, it's, it's one of those mycobacteria. So you're treating with three months of minocycline or clarithromycin. So this is a prolonged Uh, prolonged treatment so um, no mycobacterium marinum for these fish bites and marine injuries Um, and
1: for those of you listening this was on last year's oite i remember this because i thought the question was ridiculous but they will (laughs) test you on it it was a marine injury and the question was what is the best uh medium to culture the most likely bacterium and like you said the most likely bacterium is uh mycobacterium marinum and the answer choices were like just regular blood auger um i think one was like uh uh, lowenstein jensen at uh 37 degrees celsius and lowenstein jensen at 30 degrees celsius and one other culture medium, because they had to find a, a fourth one. And uh, so mycobacterium, it's all within like the tuberculosis class. But this mycobacterium marinum is grown on a Lowenstein-Jensen at 30 degrees, whereas the mycobacterium tuberculosis is Lowenstein-Jensen at 37 degrees Celsius. So they, <laughs> they do yeah, I love test that. You on that and... Uh, I remember that now. It's, yeah, it was total nonsense, but one of my co-residents was like, oh yeah, it was, you have to grow it on a <laughs> uh, decreased temperatures, and I was like, no, it's not obvious, dude, what are you talking
0: about? It's <laughs> not his obvious, boards,
1: He's taking his boards this upcoming year, so we'll see how he feels about those. <laughs> um, but yeah, oh, sorry, uh, a little.
0: Oh, little that's yeah. great. Um, That's great. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> So uh, next question. So uh, what condition is noted in a farmer who um, was who fish and, and swine and he shows up with a wound with a painful, itchy, ring-shaped lesion with a purple border?
1: Uh, so this is something I had no clue, um, but glad that you brought it up. It's called fish handler's disease. And I, I apologize to everybody listening, um, but it is uh due to a uh, bacterium <laughs> known as erysio plethorix ruciopathiae so Aerisio plethorix ruciopathiae and um, it's all of this fancy stuff to just be treated with oral oral uh, penicillin so yeah um, fish handler disease oral penicillin um, which typically if they're talking about a farm injury whether it's a regular farm or fish farm if you add penicillin to it it's probably not the wrong answer if it's part of the answer choices so just one thing to keep in mind kind of a test taking pearl um but uh moving on to kind of joint infections in kids versus adults what's the most common route of joint infections in kids and adults
0: yeah so in kids um it's going to be due to a hematogenous spread versus adults maybe like direct inoculation via trauma or you know IV drug use something of that sort so kids can be hematogenous spread uh, adults direct inoculation Um, now what is the most sensitive lab finding in acute osteomyelitis
1: Uh, crp is the thing you're looking for and you can pretty much kind of go with that on almost any orthopedic um infection, whether it's a joint infection, a periprosthetic joint infection, osteo, that sort of stuff is uh, looking at CRP, diagnose it with cultures, whether that is uh, attaining a sample uh, versus a blood culture, which can be positive. It's treated, may, the mainstay of treatment is with antibiotics. If they have, uh, if you trend the CRP and it stays the same or elevates, then consider advanced imaging plus surgery, but a lot of the mainstay of treatment for osteomyelitis is it is not a surgical condition. It is a medical condition that can uh, go away with antibiotics and uh, CRP trend. Um, But within the uh, osteomyelitis, we have a part of it that's called the sequestrum or the sequestra. Uh, What is the sequestrum?
0: Yes. Yeah, so that's actually just going to be the necrotic dead bone itself that's seen in osteomyelitis. So the sequester is the necrotic dead bone. And that is, uh, uh, you know, that in another term is also always thrown around with osteomyelitis. Uh, what is uh, involucrum? Uh, the involucrum?
1: The uh, involucrum is essentially what it sounds like. It sounds like an envelope and an envelope surrounds a letter. So the involucrum is going to be the new bone formation around the sequestrum it's kind of the body's way of walling off the uh, infection and um, containing it the best it can um, and should antibiotics for chronic osteo be based on a sinus tract biopsy or should you get a deep culture of uh, the infection
0: yeah so big thing you want to get a, a deep culture you know, I, you know the thing with these a lot of times are polymicrobial and and uh, in our Grand Rounds there's a little uh, the other day was a little bit of debate about, you know, um, biopsying. And I think our, our Grand Rounds is on like diabetic foot ulcers, which is uh, just a fun topic. We all got to <laughs> love that. And um, <laughs> we're talking about something similar to this as far as um, uh, biopsy. Um, but, you know, when you when you want to do it, you want to biopsy the deep cultures. They want to biopsy the sinus tract, although a sinus tract is a diagnostic for infection um so if you see a signing tract uh, a draining sinus tract you know that's an infection um uh, but what type of malignancy can this chronic osteomyelitis lead to uh
1: that is a squamous cell carcinoma um, commonly called a margillin's ulcer and essentially it's uh your your body self proliferates, and I really think it's in an attempt to close this sinus tract down. But the uh, infection and inflammation keep winning, and your body keeps trying to lay this this epithelial layer down, this squamous cell layer down, and eventually these cells go rogue, and the and the body loses control and develops a squamous cell carcinoma uh, from that. And so, um, it's they are typically large um, kind of uh, pushed out, elevated lesions from the skin. It's not like a, uh, every single sinus tract has a marginal ulcer. These are, this is long standing. These are the patients that forego treatment for uh, a number of months before being seen. So uh, not very common, but still can definitely happen. Um, and then a few of the classic just kind of trigger pulling uh, answer, uh, bullet points here. Um, what's the most common organism seen in sickle cell patients with osteo.
0: That's going to be salmon. Nope. Staff They, uh, they want to try to get us with the, with the salmonella. Salmonella is common, but again, staff most common. Uh, what is the most common common organism seen in a puncture wound through the shoe? This, this must, this must get us through the shoe. What is it going to be?
1: Oh, uh, it must be Pseudomonas, right? Nope, it's still <laughs> Staph aureus. We're, we're talking about most common, not commonly associated. So like you said, commonly associated is Salmonella uh, and commonly associated uh, with the sickle cell is Salmonella, but commonly associated with a puncture through the shoe is Pseudomonas, but Staph aureus, once again, is the most common uh, seen. So uh. You, you still want to keep pseudomonas in the back of your mind, but it's not uh, necessarily the diagnostic uh, thing here. But uh, one thing we definitely want to keep in our minds when we see, a let's say he's a 35-year-old, healthy, sexually active guy, but he has a septic knee. He seems like a healthy guy, but he's got a septic knee. What, what should be the first thing that comes to your mind?
0: Should have added in there like, and he just came back from Vegas on a, on like yeah. a, uh, <laughs> like a bachelor trip that would have cleared it away. But uh, no, so in all, in all reality, we're talking about gonococcal arthritis again, and that young, sexual, uh, sexually active, healthy individual that has subject arthritis, you always want to have gonococcal arthritis on your radar. And the treatment for this is going to be ceftriaxone. Yeah, now, what is it's the? Actually, uh, it's not yeah, as, uh,
1: um, like with other septic arthritis, that's like emergent or very urgent, uh, surgical debridement. But uh, kind of the mainstay of treatment with the donococcal arthritis, I think, can be fully treated with antibiotics alone. You don't necessarily have to go into the joint for these patients because the ceftriaxone mm-hmm. is so uh, active against it. But uh, just a little bit of a side note there.
0: Interesting. Um, And and, and to wrap up some of these infections here, uh, what is the most common organism in shoulder infections?
1: Uh, That would be, I I just got a notification in my uh, inbox today, actually uh, on a patient that I aspirated um, that he was positive. He has a proximal humerus uh, from a chondrosarcoma. uh, So proximal humerus replacement and, uh, aspirated him because he just has this kind of dull, vague pain, and his culture came back positive for QD bacterium acnes. It used to be called P acnes, now it's C acnes. Um, and it's again a slow culture growth. I almost forgot I even aspirated this guy's shoulder, but the lab uh, emailed me three weeks later and said, Hey, QD bacterium acne grew. So you want to hold the cultures for two plus weeks because that's. Uh, that is how long it takes to this to grow. And this is, it, it's exactly what happened in, in a patient. And uh, not that we want patients to have bad outcomes, but sometimes the best way to remember some of this stuff is unfortunately to have a patient who, who had this happen to them because then you don't, you, you really won't forget it. Uh, and the treatment um, is, kind uh, of a penicillin, uh, you can do tetracyclines, you can use clindamycin depends on the goals of the patient, whether you go back into the shoulder and, uh, rip everything out and do a revision, like a stage revision. Um, sometimes the patient's are like, you know what, the pain really isn't that horrible. I'm okay with taking an antibiotic, like a doxycycline, uh, every day for the next years of my life. However, <laughs> they're, and they're okay with that. That's not, sometimes they're just like, yeah, it's, fine it doesn't bother me that much so you don't actually have to go in necessarily all the time
0: thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the nailed it ortho podcast hit that subscribe button go and get the notes for trauma if you have not already basic science likely will not be out in time but do not fear do not cry please hold back your tears we are working on the actual companion book And that will probably come out in 2022 uh, in time for next year's OITE, as, as well as all the other sections, like the ones we haven't talked about, like oncology. We haven't talked about adult reconstruction, foot and ankle, hand, spine, peds. So there's a lot of ortho left.